All right. Good evening. All right, tonight we're going to um, cover several chapters, but not read all of them. Uh, but we're going to cover several chapters tonight. I think chapters uh, 15 through 21. Uh, most of it is just going to be overview and just kind of going through. Uh, because those chapters cover the uh, distribution of the of the tribes, you know, them receiving their inheritance. We did 13 and 14 uh, yesterday. I'm sorry, last week. And so chapters 15 through... 21 cover the I think the western side we look at the map I had up I don't have it up today uh, you have the east side where you had the three tribes and then you have the west side of Jordan where you have the other nine tribes so uh, we're going to look at some different verses in these uh, chapters uh, so chapters 15 16 17 uh, cover the inheritance of uh, Judah, Ephraim, and the other half of the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh was the, uh, the largest tribe, which is the tribe of Joseph, and so it had to be split up into two different parts, the east side of the Jordan and the west side of the Jordan. And uh, so let's pray, Lord. Thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to understand the text tonight and look at gospel truths and look at your goodness toward your people and your goodness toward us as an extension and as a picture of that and Lord help us in our area of weaknesses where we uh, fail forgive us of our sins and Lord just refresh us by your word those who are in here and those who are listening and watching uh, on Facebook and Lord fill me with your spirit to teach this text well in Christ's name I pray, amen. So again, chapters 13 through 21, this is the middle section of the book, covers the distribution of the inheritances of the 12 tribes. You know, again, last week we looked at chapters 13 and 14. Today we're going to look at chapters 15 through 21. Uh, but we're not, again, we're not going to look at them verse for verse as we normally do. We're just going to generalize everything. So uh, chapter 15 covers the allotment of Judah. So it says in 15 and 1, the allotment for the tribe of, of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, so forth and so on. So it talks about their boundary on the south side. Then it goes on to. Uh, describe where the boundary goes and we talked last week about boundaries uh, because if you look at these verses you'll see boundaries you'll see the south boundary in verse 2 the east boundary in verse 5 and then you see a boundary mentioned in verse 9 okay you got the east boundary again in verse 5 and then verse 6, the boundary goes up. Okay, and then verse 9, the boundaries tend to the mountains. Then verse 10, the boundary circles west. Um, you know, so forth and so on. So you see boundaries. 
and then the west boundary, verse 12. Okay, so the point in all that we talked about this was that these tribes were, in essence, their own, like a nation within a nation. They were all God's covenant people, but they were responsible for driving out the inhabitants of their land. So each tribe had its own specific land allotment, and they were responsible for that land. They were responsible for tilling the land, making sure that everyone in that tribe had something to eat, you know, be able to work and all those things. But they also had the responsibility of driving out the, the pagans, the Canaanites, from that land so they had that responsibility also so within those lands you had cities if you look at verse 20 of chapter 15 you'll see their clans verse 21 the cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in extreme south and then it gives those cities then verse 33 in the lowland okay so it gives those cities. So from verse 33 all the way down until verse 62, you see all of the cities, all the clans had their own little cities inside of this territory. So, you know, everyone had their, their land and their cities inside of this tribe. And this is the way it was for all the tribes. Now, I want to highlight verse 63. When I was studying this this morning, I highlighted certain verses that we need to look at. Chapter 15, verse 63 says this. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, at this time, Jerusalem was not the capital city of Israel. Jerusalem was just a city that was occupied by the pagans, by the Canaanites. At, at this time in Israel's history, Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem became the city of David, you know, the holy city where the, the temple was built. And, and, and Jerusalem was basically the, the headquarters, so to speak. Uh, that's where the king was. That's where the kingdom was centered around Jerusalem. When uh, the exiles came back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they built, they rebuilt the temple back in Jerusalem. And they rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the holy city city of God's people but at this point in history Jerusalem was not but it was part of that land that they were inheriting so again says in verse 63 the Jebusites who were pagans the inhabitants of Jerusalem the people of Judah could not drive out so the Jebusites dwelt with the people of Judah at Israel to this day So think about that. They could not drive them out. Let that stick in your mind. Why is this important? We went back to this before. Going back to the book of Deuteronomy where God told them, when you occupy this land, you are to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, the animals, everything. We looked at that uh, chapter verse last week and week before last. But that was their command when they went into the wilderness was to drive out everything. They were to utterly destroy everything in those lands. But they failed to do that. So here are the Jebusites. They couldn't drive them out. They had all this success. 
But the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites. And that's not good. Okay? So, and, and, and this is going to have an impact later on as, as we are going uh, to see. It's going to have a great impact. But they didn't drive them out. Okay? So, but God was still going to keep his promise with them. But these Jebusites were supposed to be gone. Because God knew the influence that these pagans would have on Israel. And we're going to see that later on. So they failed in their mission. The tribe of Judah failed to do that. Now Jerusalem stayed in the hands of the Canaanites. Until the time of David. And the time of David was when it became. Uh, the holy seed of Israel. Israel was able to conquer. Um, this This place. Let me show you how this happened. Turn to 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel, the fifth chapter. And look at verses 6 through 10. Second Samuel 5, 6 through 10. <coughs> and the king is speaking of David and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. What did we just read in Joshua? The Jebusites were not driven out of Jerusalem. So here it is a few hundred years later. The king and his men went up to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. The inhabitants of the land who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David, so he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around the millow and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So Jerusalem was renamed the city of David. Okay? That's why it's referred to as that in, in the Bible. Because David finally drove the what? The Jebusites out. They weren't supposed to be there in the first place. If the tribe of Judah had done their duty to drive them out, then this this would would have never even have had to happen. Okay? But God was still uh, gracious God fulfilled his promise but that city was not supposed to be in Canaanite hands but it was because they failed to drive them out and that's the nature of sin if we fail to drive sin out it will take over sin will enslave us if we fail to drive sin out of our lives and it's, it's no excuse for us to let, let it do that so they didn't drive the Jebusites out from Jerusalem and they dwelt until that day. So, again, Moses told them to not allow the Canaanites to survive and to live among them. Okay? But they disobeyed that. They uh, did not obey that warning. 
So the Canaanites still had the upper hand in that tribe. And then next, moving on to verse chapter 16, rather, you see the inheritance of the sons of Joseph, which is uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. The allotment of the people of Joseph went uh, from the Jordan by Jericho, and then it gives the borders for them. Then it describes territory, it describes the boundaries. You see, when you read those verses, you will see boundaries, boundaries, and boundaries. Now, look at verse 10. This is the tribe of, uh, have the tribe of Manasseh. What does verse 10 say? However, however is a contrary word. It means but. So however, what happened? They did not, this is verse 10, drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day but have been made to do forced labor. So they kept them as slaves, but that doesn't matter. They were still Canaanites, and they still dwelt among these people. It was still wrong. They didn't fully conquer for two reasons. And one of the reasons probably that they wanted peace at any cost. And probably they wanted wealth. That's why they kept them as slaves. But that was not what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to get rid of them and this was typical of almost all the other tribes even in the promised land there were important battles to fight important work to do and they failed to to realize that so they wanted forced laborers and they and they got them but they still disobeyed God's command because God told them again to get rid of all the people of those nations. Because if they had the power to make them slaves, they had the power to destroy them. Because they were slaves by force. It says forced slavery. That means they were forced into slavery. So if they had the power to force them into slavery, guess what? They had the same power to kill them and to destroy them and to get rid of them. They had the same power. Now, this sort of compromise, compromise, some compromises seem very innocent. It seems innocent. But this was how idolatry and immoral worship uh, was adopted by the people of Israel. And this is why when we see the book of Judges, why there were so many struggles in the, in the days of the judges because of the compromises that were made in the book of Joshua years before when we compromise God's word God's standard God's principles there will always be a unnecessary struggle as believers we cannot compromise for one bit once you compromise in one area you're compromising all I was talking to Someone um, the other day that I used to work with at a, at a private school here in our area, and uh, we were we, we were sharing how this school is is compromising on on certain uh, admission standards and and certain dress standards and stuff like that. The school, and she and I both made a comment. After a while, you might as well not even call this school a Christian school 
because they're compromising so much. They're not going to be any more distinct from the other private school uh, up there going up 10th Street Hill. That, 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 that it's not going to be a distinction between what's a Christian school and what's a secular private school if you're going to compromise on everything. What's you to call yourself a Christian school if you're going to compromise on Christian values? At that point, you might as well not even call yourself a Christian school. A church might as well not call itself a church if a church is going to compromise on God's standard and God's word. If we begin to compromise on certain things in church, what we believe, then guess what? Why are we even a church? We can't say we're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're compromising on women preachers or compromising on uh, homosexuals uh, being able to be uh, invited to church membership and, and all these things. Those are things that the Bible expressly forbids. If we compromise on that, say, oh, you know, we got to be nice to those people and, and let them become members of the church. We're compromising scripture. And I mean, they can't come and worship with us, but they cannot join us as members. Because to be part of Christ's church, you have to be regenerate. Number one, you have to be saved because it's a regenerate membership. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of believers, not people who profess Christ, but people who are born again. People who have forsaken their sin and followed Christ. A person who does not forsake their sin can't be a member of the church. When you compromise in one area, you might as well all bets off. Israel, they compromised. They did not fully drive out these pagans. And guess what? They're going to pay for it. Because God had warned them that if they didn't do this, if they didn't drive out these inhabitants, that guess what? Well, the reason why they need to do it is so that they would not practice what they practice. So they would not practice what the pagans practice. So they would not become idolaters like the Canaanites were. That's why they had to get rid of them. But they let some stay in and they, they, they justified it by saying that they were forced laborers. But they were still within Israel. So it's still a problem when you compromise. If you compromise in little, you've compromised much. So this tribe didn't do it. And then look at verses 12 and 13. See the same thing again. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. This is going back to verse 11. But they did not take possession of those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not what? Utterly. The, the ESV says utterly. Because that's what they were supposed to do. Utterly drive them out. But they did not do that. Again, they didn't do it. So there we see again, compromise. It's the same pattern that Ephraim followed back in the 16th chapter that we looked at. So Ephraim did it in the 16th chapter. Now half the tribe of Manasseh did it as we see in the 17th chapter. <laughs> 
The Canaanites were more determined to dwell in the land than Israel was in driving them out. Isn't that something? That the enemies of God's people were more determined to dwell in that land than God's people were to drive their enemies out. Sin is very pleased to dwell in us. Are we determined to rid ourselves of sin? Are we as determined to put off the old man as the old man is determined to cling to us? The devil is very crafty. The, the, the devil, the Bible says that he roams the earth back and forth to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. That's First Peter 5. Satan does that, our adversary. But Peter tells us the remedy is to resist him steadfast in the faith. We are to resist evil. We are to resist Satan. We're not to compromise and continue to let him in. No, we resist him steadfast in the faith. But Israel didn't do that. And guess what? They paid for it. So looking at chapter 18, you see the rest of the land was allotted basically uh, chapters 18 through 19 the allotment of the rest of the land the last seven tribes did not uh, did not receive the land up until this point so verses 18 and 19 chapter I'm sorry chapters 18 and 19 deal with the rest of these uh, tribes receiving their land it talks about Benjamin and 19 says Simeon and then Zebulon and then Issachar verse 17 Asher verse 24 uh, Nephtali verse 32 Dan verse 40 and Joshua the tribe of Joshua verse 49 and then you get down to the cities of Refuge. So this is a, a part of the focus also. The cities of refuge were talked about back in uh, Deuteronomy. So in, in chapter 20, we see um, six cities of refuge. This is for the uh, to, to protect men who, who committed manslaughter. So it says in verse 20. The Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. So the cities of refuge, it was six of them that had to be in the land. This was for people who, who committed manslaughter. Manslaughter is unintentional murder. That means you don't mean to kill someone. You don't do it with intent or with malice. That's right. So God was gracious to those who committed manslaughter. Now God had commanded this back in Numbers uh, 35. This is back when they were in the wilderness. So they're being faithful in fulfilling that command that God had given to Moses back when they were in the wilderness. 
Now, again, the purpose of the Cities of Refuge was to protect the person who committed manslaughter. Not the person who committed murder, but the person who committed manslaughter. Now, the avenger of blood would be someone who uh, is a representative of the victim's family. And what would happen is if, if someone intentionally killed, okay, uh, Phyllis, I killed someone in your family, and you send one of your cousins after me. Your cousin would be the avenger of blood, someone who seeks vengeance if I do it accidentally. They make sure that justice is carried out against the uh, person who murdered the family member. But God had passion to make sure that murderers were punished in ancient Israel. But he also made sure that the final responsibility of justice rested on the designated uh, avenger of blood in the family. Now, in scripture, capital punishment is biblical. It goes back to Genesis 9 and 6. Whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed for an image of God he made man. Okay, so punishing a murderer with the death penalty was biblical. A person who committed murder. And God said that unpunished uh, un murderers defile the land. So if you don't punish murders, if you don't punish murderers, it defiles the land. This is what God said in Numbers 35 and 31 through 34. It says, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. But he shall surely be put to death. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. So God was telling them that murderers had to be punished because if not, they defiled the land. Think about our land. You have murderers that get away in our land. You have people who seek a lighter sentences, lighter sentences for murderers. And you know what it does in a, in a principal way? It defiles the land when you let murderers go. It perverts justice when you let murderers go. A person who murders, remember, murder and manslaughter, if murder involves intent, murder involves malice, murder involves premeditation. There is no reason why a murderer should ever be let out of jail. Ever. There's no reason why a murderer, someone who intentionally takes someone's life, should be let out of prison. That defiles the land. It defiled the land of Israel. It defiles any nation. Because that's like the highest form of harm against a human being, an image bearer of God. It's to kill them. If you won't punish a murderer, 
justly, then all the other criminals, guess what? You're going to do the same way. It's going to trickle down to the rest of society. If you can't punish the worst criminals among us, which are murderers, why? Because murderers have taken another person's life. They've, they've taken another image bearer's life. That's like the highest crime that you can commit is murder. If you can't punish them rightly, you're not going to punish any other type of criminal, any other type of crime rightly. I don't know if y'all see videos on, on, on the internet sometimes about people going into these stores in these big cities and just, just robbing these stores, stealing, and just walking out. Because a lot of these liberal cities, they don't punish people for coming in and stealing stuff. You got stores like Walgreens and like San Francisco or Los Angeles, some of these other cities, they got like basic products behind glass, glass doors and stuff like that because people coming in in, in, in mass gangs and just going and just rob stores. They have masks on. Some of them don't even have masks. They don't even have their faces. They just go and just steal stuff and walk out the store, run out the store. There's videos all like that on the internet. Why? Because if you want to punish crime, if you want to punish murderers, you're not going to punish robbers. You're not going to punish thieves. You're not going to punish rapists. You're going to let them off the hook. You're going to give them a slap on the wrist. And that defiles the land. And that's what we see in our day, in our nation. If Israel didn't punish murderers, as God prescribed, it would defile their land. Because our nation, again, is polluted by the stain of unpunished murders. And it is sad. But God had mercy on the avengers of blood. He had mercy on them. He had mercy on them. So they had to seek refuge from the avenger of blood. So, again, God sought protection for these mans manslayers, rather manslaughter, um, accidental or unintentional killing. So the cities of refuge were established to protect the person that is innocent of murder. So how did they get entrance? Verse 4, when he flees to one of these cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city, and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them so he would go, go to the elders I'm just kind of reenacting hey I, you know, I accidentally killed somebody I need you know I, I need some help <laughs> you know he states his case you know let him know you know the axe head flew off or whatever and killed somebody you know just some, something like that whatever so he has to state his case. Now, in, in, in these times, uh, the elders spent time at the gates of the city. So this man had to state his case to the elders at the city gates before he, he even had entrance into the cities. And so what they do, they take him into the city as one of them. So after the, the person explained their case, 
they could expect to find protection within the walls of that city of refuge. And he would have to live in that city. He would have to stay there in order to enjoy that protection. Isn't that something? They basically had to become a resident of that city. It's almost like being in witness protection, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Then it says, verse 5, If the avenger blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And you know what this shows? Murder begins with what? Hatred. Premed That's why they call it what? Premeditated murder. You, you premeditate, you, you, you thought about it previous to you committing it. Murder always begins with hatred. Hatred in the heart. Always. So the leaders of a city of refuge were obligated to protect the one who had fled to the city. So when that avenger of blood came to that city where he probably heard that the person was hiding and he met those elders at the gate, the elders would not let him in. They wouldn't deliver that man to be executed. Why? Because he fled to that city of refuge. Israel had a very good legal system because the judgments were based upon intent and premeditation. And that's a good way to judge things. I think in our nation, our, our criminal justice system is not perfect, but it's better than most criminal justice systems around the world. Because in the United States, we have the presumption of innocence. In our legal system, everyone is presumed innocent until proved guilty by a jury of their peers. That's the great thing about our nation. You know, there's some things wrong about it. There's no perfect nation on this earth. But that's one good thing about our nation and our legal system. It's every single person has the presumption of innocence. They may be found guilty in public opinion. But public opinion doesn't matter. You don't put a person in jail based on what the public thinks about them. No, you give them a what? Fair trial. They're presumed innocent. And they get to plead guilty or not guilty. Because intent and premeditation has to be proven. We talked about this with all the stuff that happened in 2020. With the police officers and stuff. And we, as Christians, we can, we can get swept up into the world's narrative and into the secular narrative just because a police officer who happens to be white shoots and kills most of the time justified a person who happens to be black does not mean that that white cop was a racist or it was because of racism that he did it but the world says it is just because the skin colors are different but they wouldn't use the same standard if it was a black cop who killed a white person. They wouldn't assume the same thing. They wouldn't say that the black cop was being racist. But they would say that the white cop was for shooting the black person. But they wouldn't say that the black cop is racist for shooting and killing the white person. That's why we have to use the biblical standard. What was the intent? Was the intent to kill when you woke up this morning? I'm going to kill a black person today. 
that's why Israel had a great justice system. And ours is, is, is kind of based on that uh, British common law was based on Old Testament law. Intent and premeditation matter. And that's why these cities of refuge matter. Okay? So it says in verse 6, there's freedom for the slayer. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may re return and come to his own city, excuse me, and his own house to the city which, from which he fled. Now, in order for the manslayer to be protected against the avenger of blood, he had to stay within the walls of the city of refuge until his case was fully heard by the proper authorities. Until the death of the standing high priest. We don't know how long that, that could have been. Now after being declared innocent of murder by the proper authorities. And after the death of the standing high priest, the slayer could go back, as it says in the scripture. He could go back to his home and be protected against the wrath of the avenger of blood. And the avenger of blood basically had to honor that, that he was declared innocent. Because if the avenger of blood kills him anyway, then guess what? That avenger of blood would be killed because he would have committed the sin of murder. So you see how God protects the innocent. And this is a picture of the gospel. We're all guilty. Christ died for us, bore our sins on the cross, and he became our refuge. The guilty run to Christ. The guilty and sin run to Christ and find what? Refuge. The psalmist says, God is our refuge, a present help in trouble. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I'll say to the Lord, He is my refuge, my God, in Him will I trust. God is our refuge. You think about that city of refuge, we're thinking about Christ. Christ is our refuge. It is where we go. We who are innocent, we rather who are not innocent. We're guilty. But we find our refuge in who? Jesus Christ. We may not be guilty of the worst sins, but we're still guilty of sins. And we can go to Christ as refuge and find that safety from our enemy. And that is our adversary, the devil. Amen. The avenger of the believer. So then there are six cities that are appointed here in verses 7 and 8. Now, verse 9, it repeats them again. It says, these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them that whoever killed a person accidentally might be, might flee there rather and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood while he stood before the congregation. So, again, the cities of refuge are a picture of Jesus. I just repeat it. I just recited Psalm 46 and 1, and it says again, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help 
in trouble. I think about 14, 15 times the psalm speaks about, the psalms speak about God being our refuge. Hebrews 6 and 18 says that by two unchangeable or immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Man, that is speaking of Christ, laying hold of Christ. We have strong consolation in Christ. Christ consoles us. <clears throat> Jesus and the cities of refuge are similar in the fact that they are open to all. Not just the Israelite. No one will be turned away from their place of refuge in a time of need if they come to Christ. A person who has the need of salvation, if they come, repent, and turn to Christ and be saved, guess what? He will receive them. They won't be turned away. Refuge from the, the bondage and tyranny of sin. All they have to do is come to Christ. And not only do we come to Christ as our refuge, but we can live. We can live in Christ. Those who seek refuge in Christ, they live in Christ. They'll have life. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only alternative to the person who is in need. Just like the city of refuge, the only alternative that that person had who committed manslaughter was to go to a city of refuge. If not, guess what? He would be killed by the avenger of blood. So that was the only alternative he had. What is the only refuge? Who is the only refuge for the sinner? Jesus. Not this world. Not the world's goods. Not material things. The only refuge for the unbeliever is salvation in Jesus Christ. And the only hope for us as believers when we need refuge is Jesus Christ. Now, one big difference is the cities of refuge only help the innocent. Those who are innocent of murder. But the guilty can come to Jesus and find refuge. I said this earlier. The city of refuge only helped the innocent, those who were innocent of murder. But the guilty can come to Christ and find refuge. We can always come to Christ and find refuge. And we praise the Lord for that. I mean, lastly, we're going to look at 21. 21 talks about the cities appointed to the Levites, the tribe of Levi. Remember, they didn't have uh, an inheritance. They, were, they had to live in different cities throughout uh, the tribe of Levi. So verses 4 through 42 talk about that, all the different cities. What I want to get down to is verse 43. The end of this chapter. I love this chapter. I love the end. I love 
what it says here about God. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, beginning back with Abraham. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Then the Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. For God delivered all their enemies into their hand. And I like this last part, verse 45. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. All the tribes had their land. All the tribes had their land. Now all they had to do was take full possession. But God had provided them everything necessary to do so. They had their land. That's what this means. He gave them all the land which they had sworn. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. They had to choose to take full possession. They took possession but not full possession, but they did take possession of it. Okay? He gave them rest. So, this is where they stopped commemorating the Passover. Because God had given them rest in the land, because the Passover was their rest, so now they could rest from that. And then that last part, verse 45, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord has spoken. God was completely faithful in regard to giving them this land. But who was not faithful? Israel, because they failed to drive out all the enemies. God is faithful. Paul says that God is faithful. He is faithful when we are faithless. God is faithful. God faithfully fulfilled his promise. But Israel was not. So any failure by Israel to fully possess the land was not because God had not given them adequate provision. It was because they failed to fully follow the Lord. The writer says all came to pass. God had been completely faithful. God has given us great things. Are we faithful with what God has given us? That's the question we must ask ourselves. Are we faithful with what God has given us? The theologian, late preacher Alan Redpath said this. In the uh, light of the cross, is it not true that the enemy has no right to dwell in the land? Is it not true that Satan's claim to your life was taken from him at Calvary? Is it not true that sin has no right to a foothold in the life of the child of God? Is it not true that Satan has no power in the presence of omnipotence? Is it not true that by virtue of his blood and his resurrection, Jesus Christ is pledged to destroy the enemy utterly? Is it not true that in the in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, there is strength for every temptation. 
grace for every trial, power to overcome every difficulty. Amen. In light of the cross, all these things are true. The enemy has no right to dwell in the land. Satan's claim to our life was taken from him at Calvary. Sin has no right to a foothold in the life of the child of God. All these things are true in light of the cross. So uh, Red Path was saying that in response to Israel not driving out all their enemies. God had given them that land. He had been completely faithful to them. And we are called to be faithful to the great things that God has given us. He's given us great things, but what do we possess? Do we possess the faith? We have the faith, but do we possess it? Are we taking hold of it? Are we walking by faith and not by sight? God has equipped all of us as believers with the, the tools, the means to, to live this Christian life, to endure the trials of life. He's given it to us by his spirit. We're not ill-equipped. God will never save us and not equip, e equip us for this Christian walk. He's equipped us. We're just not taking possession of what he's given us. We have to pray and ask God to give us wisdom to, to do that. Because God never fails. He is faithful. He will watch over us and he will be with us. We just have to lay hold and walk in what God has already given us by his spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.